Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. We ask that your Spirit be at work among us today. May he open our eyes to see Jesus. And may he give us hearts that not only see him, but love him and obey him. Uh, so please help us now, we pray. Help me to preach rightly. Uh, help each one of us to respond rightly to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Uh, lovely to see everyone here today. Uh, uh, please could you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 37. Matthew 12, 15 to 37, um, which we read earlier. Just get you, give you a moment to get that up. Well, have you committed the unforgivable sin? Have you? Is that even a thing? Is there actually something that you could do from which there is no salvation? And if it were, how would you know if you did it? Well, if this is something you've ever thought about, or you think you better find out about, then listen la very carefully today. Because in our passage today, Jesus himself warns us against an unforgivable sin. And we need to take his warning seriously. We need to take it to heart to make sure we don't fall into it. But in order to do that properly, we need to understand it rightly in its context. And so this morning we're looking at not just the words, the warning, but that whole passage uh, in which it is found. Last week, you remember how Jesus stood up to the Pharisees on the issue of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath, the one who can give true rest. At the end of our passage last week, he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, a picture of the, the wholeness that he will bring at the end of the age, the, the, the final rest to which the Sabbath was pointing. But remember how the passage ended in verse 14? But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And verse 15 tells us that Jesus is aware of this. So how does he respond? Well, here's an idea. He could publicize his healing so more people see that he is the Messiah, and then with the crowds on his side, he could start criticizing the Romans, and once he's got the popular support of the Jews against the Romans, he united them together under him, uh, against the Romans, then, the Pharisees are at best sidelined and at worst finished. After all, a good offense is the best defense, they say. But that is not what Jesus does. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus withdraws from there. He simply goes elsewhere. That doesn't mean he stopped the ministry he's doing, he just continues somewhere else, lah. Verse 15 says that many followed him, and he healed them all. But he also ordered them not to make him known. He's going to keep on doing what Matthew called the deeds of the Christ, uh, back in chapter 11, the things the Old Testament said would happen when God came to save and rule his people. 
But at the same time, he's not going to use his healing powers for political purposes. Why this strategy? Because he knows God's plans. Matthew tells us, verses 17 to 21, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah had prophesied about this coming person called the servant of the Lord, in whom God would delight. And God said to, the, said to the prophet, verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. God will be very pleased with him. This servant will be given the spirit. Verse 18 continues, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And yet, he would do this not by revolution. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. He's not going to lead a, a radical rebellion. In fact, verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break. Right? A reed is that thin plant, bit like lalang, you know, that grows in the water. Uh, and a bruised reed is a reed that has been damaged. And even then, this sermon is so kind, it's not going to come and crack it off. And verse 20 continues, a smoldering wick he will not quench. A wick is that, you know, that, that string-like thing like, in the middle of a, uh, a candle that burns while the candle melts. And a smoldering wick is one that's about to go out. But the sermon is so merciful, he's not going to snuff it out. Verse 20 assures us that he will bring justice to victory. He will win, not only for Israel, but in verse 21, in his name the Gentiles will hope. This servant will bring justice to the whole world in the end. The Spirit will enable him to do that. But he will do that in a meek and gentle way, not in a political one. Jesus knows that he is the servant of the Lord, prophesied by the prophet Isaiah back in the Old Testament. At his baptism, the father himself said, with him, I am well pleased. Uh, can we not take photos during the service, please? Thank you. Uh, that is an echo of what the servant said in Isaiah uh, that is cited there in verse 18. He says, with my, my soul is well pleased. Okay. Um, at the baptism, the father said, well pleased. Here, from Isaiah, well pleased. In other words, he's saying, Jesus is the servant. Right? And remember how God put his spirit on the servant, on Jesus at his baptism. Uh, and now, the servant we read, upon him is the spirit. Okay? So Jesus knows he's the servant. He's the one he's given the spirit. He's the one in whom the Father delights. He'll bring justice to the world without resorting to violence. Christians must never forget the strategy of our leader and follow the ways of the world. Our religion is not a political one. We don't bring in God's kingdom by revolutionary means. We don't go to war to bring in God's kingdom. Because it's not that kind of kingdom and Jesus is not that kind of king. So Jesus is the servant upon whom is the Spirit. The Spirit is able, enabling him to doing this servant work. Now Matthew wants, to know, wants us to know this because 
And he's telling us here, because the next thing he's going to tell us is about how the Pharisees blasphemed the Spirit and the consequences of their action. Right, so he may or may not be following chronological order. He purposely arranges this way because he wants us to understand their blasphemy in light of the prophecy about the servant. Now, here's the background of that blasphemy. In verse 22, a demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute is brought to Jesus. He heals him, so the man speaks and he sees. Now, not everyone who is blind or mute in the Bible is demonized, right? Uh, other examples in the Bible of blindness and muteness not caused by demon oppression. But the demon is the cause of the blindness and muteness of this particular man. And so when Jesus drives out the demon, this man is healed. And all the people in verse 23 are amazed. They say, can this be the son of David? Uh, David was, was God's anointed king a thousand years before this. God had promised David his dynasty would last forever. But for many years now, there had been no Davidic king. People were waiting for God to send his king to rescue his people. So when they saw Jesus doing what he did, they wondered, can this be the one? Now the Pharisees were worried. Lah. If people start believing Jesus is God's promised king, that's, that's dangerous for them politically. And so they come up with an alternative explanation. They say horrifically in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, Beelzebul was originally the name of a Canaanite god. Uh, but by the time of Jesus, the Jews were using this name to refer to Satan. And in trying to prevent people from believing in Jesus as king, they were accusing Jesus of being a sorcerer, using the evil powers of the dark side. That was a very serious charge. And would have attracted a death penalty under the law of Moses. Jesus, in verse 25, knows their thoughts. He knows why they're saying this. And he responds with three arguments. Firstly, for Satan to empower him to do what he's doing would be self-defeating. Right, verse 25 continues, Every kingdom divided itself against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided itself against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Right? Satan can't just be giving Jesus the power to then come and attack him. Right? Because Jesus is hurting his cause. Um, just imagine Arsenal and Manchester United are playing against each other. And you suspect one of the Arsenal players is actually being paid by Manchester United right, to make Man U win. But when you watch that match, right, you see this, this, this player scoring goal after goal after goal against Manchester United. Eventually, you've got to say, cannot be la. Right? And over and over again, Jesus has been casting out demons. And every time he's done so, he's released one of the people that Satan held captive. Now, what sense would it make for the devil to give his power to a human being to ransack the kingdom of demons? Satan may be evil, but he is no fool. He knows that if his kingdom is divided against itself, it will be ruined. And after all that Jesus was doing to destroy Satan's work in the land of Israel, there's no way he could have been empowered by Satan himself. And then he makes another argument. He says, well, he's not the only one casting out demons. Verse 27, And if I cast out demon by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. One of my school teachers, 
I used to say, you point one finger, you've got three fingers pointing back against you, right? Uh, and that's exactly the same here. You see, the Jews did exorcisms as well. And if the Jews did exorcisms, why don't the Pharisees say they are using the power of Beelzebub? You've got to be at least consistent lah, in your slander. Now, of course, they're not. Of course, this doesn't negate the fact that there seems to be a big difference between Jesus' exorcism and theirs. Their exorcisms were probably more elaborate, more protracted, more magic-like than Jesus' simple command to demons, but not nearly as successful. If, if they were, then the crowds wouldn't have been so impressed with Jesus. Uh, Jesus appears to do it with incredible authority and ease. He seems to be doing it effortlessly. But rather than absurdly claiming that he's using the power of the devil, they should realize that Jesus is simply far, far, far more powerful than the evil power that he is facing. And surely the power of God is greater than the power of Satan. We've already seen that God's Spirit is indeed empowering Jesus to do his servant work. And if the Spirit-empowered servant is indeed at work, then the one who will bring justice to the nations was standing right in front of them. So Jesus says in verse 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The third way that Jesus shows the folly of what the Pharisees are claiming is to clarify what he's actually doing. He is, in verse 29, entering a strong man's house and plundering his goods. Back in Isaiah 49, God promised that one day he would save Israel. And he says in Isaiah 49, 24 and 25, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, and I will save your children. Now, Isaiah, of course, is initially talking about the exile. Uh, but even the exile from the land is a picture of the bigger exile of God's people, of, of all people, from the Garden of Eden. And the captivity of God's people to their enemies is a picture of the real bigger one of the captivity to Satan that all people are under because of sin. And the real restoration from the exile will come when, when Jesus, the servant, brings justice to the nations. And the real release from captivity will come when Jesus rescues all who have faith in him from the Satan's kingdom and brings them into his own. And what Jesus was doing for this blind, mute man and others like him under Satan's clutches was a foretaste of that rescue that would come through his death. And so he uses the picture language of Isaiah to describe what he's doing. What Isaiah calls the mighty or the tyrant, he calls the strong man. But the point that he's making as he does this is that he has to fight the strong man, not work with him. He says in verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. A number of years ago, a couple from Smack 2 were robbed at their home. Uh, it was terrible. The thieves came in and they tied them up uh, before they ransacked the house uh, because they were at home. 
Jesus, the servant, has been plundering Satan's house. He's been freeing his captives, people like this blind mute man. If you're a thief breaking into a house of a strong man, you're not going to ask him for help. Right, please help me load my van, you know, with your TV set and no Allah. Right? You're going to find him instead. And Jesus is not going to use Satan's own power to rob him. Instead, he will tie him up. That's what Jesus has been doing. He's been overpowering the forces of evil, releasing people that the devil had firmly and totally under his grasp. And so when I say just now Jesus is not going to go to war, I'm talking about military war. Because the real war that Jesus is indeed fighting was a spiritual one. It's a battle of good and evil, of Jesus and Satan. And in that war, Jesus says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Knowing that, which side are you on in this spiritual war? I choose your side because even today, even on the other side of the cross, that battle continues. It's being fought on a different level now, but it's still going on. It's a different level because Jesus has won the decisive victory on the cross, isn't it? Uh, Colossians 2.14 says that God forgave our sins by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus bore our sins to the cross. We got nailed our debt to the cross. Jesus paid for it. Gone. And by doing that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to overshame. He triumphed over them in him. They, he took away their arms. They got nothing they can use against us now. He has bound the strong man in an even greater way than in this passage. And now he is ransacking the house in an even greater way than in this passage. Because now every time someone comes to Jesus in repentance and faith through the preaching of the gospel, that is someone else Jesus has rescued from the clutches of Satan, not only in this life, but forever. Which is why passages like Ephesians 6, which deal with spiritual warfare, are all about the gospel. Sword of the spirit that you fight with is what? The word of God. Now, exorcisms on the lower kind of level that we see in this passage may still be necessary on some occasions. Right, we see still that happening after the cross, for example, in Acts 16. But the main way that we participate in the spiritual battle, that we join with Jesus in his plundering of the strong man, is by the preaching of the gospel. Which side are you on in the spiritual battle? Now, the Pharisees were on the wrong side. But as good religious people, they, they would have been horrified to be told they're on the side of the devil. But if they're opposing Jesus, they are fighting on the wrong side in that war, whether they mean to be or not. Which is why Jesus says in verse 31, because of this, therefore, because they're on the wrong side, he tells them this, he says, I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, to blaspheme is to speak abusively or insultingly or mockingly of God. And since Jesus is doing his servant work by the Spirit, and they are saying it is by Beelzebul, they are equating the Spirit with the devil. 
there is blasphemy against him. And Jesus says it will not be forgiven. Every other sin and blasphemy be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Spirit. Jesus says it again in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That's Jesus himself. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Why do you think that is? Because you see, this spirit, this servant, this servant's spirit-empowered work does not end with the exorcism, does it? Remember the Isaiah passage that Matthew mentioned? It doesn't actually say how the, spirit, uh, how the servant achieves his purposes. And we know it's by the spirit, we know it's not by violence, but you've got to keep on reading in Isaiah till Isaiah 53 to find the details. And there we read how the servant would die for the sins of God's people. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God and afflicted. But he, the servant, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus, the servant upon whom was the Spirit, the servant was going to die for the sins of many. He would bear our guilt and our punishment on our behalf at the cross. That every sin and blasphemy, even against him, can be forgiven because Jesus the servant would pay the penalty himself. The Pharisees needed that forgiveness as much as the deaf-mute man needed to be released from demonization. But they had called the Spirit's work through the servant the work of the devil. And their blasphemous words showed their blasphemous hearts. Jesus connects the words to their hearts in the very next verses. Go straight on into that. He says in verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. This blasphemy uttered by the Pharisees against the Spirit had come from hearts that had persistently, decisively, and irrevocably rejected the work of the servant. Hearts that would never turn away from sin and come to the Savior. Hearts that would therefore never be forgiven. So what's the unforgivable sin? I put to you that the unforgivable sin is having a heart that rejects the servant work of Jesus persistently, culpably, and permanently. And it's expressed in words that are used of the Spirit who enables him to do that work. The Pharisees' words reflected their hearts and they would face judgment on the last day. But it's not just the Pharisees. 
They are one example of a general principle. And Jesus moves now from the specific application of how the, the blasphemous words of the Pharisees show their blasphemous hearts to the broad principle of how words show hearts and therefore will be used on the day of judgment. Verse 36. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. And brothers and sisters, that broader principle applies to us as well, isn't it? In different ways. Words matter because they reveal the heart. You may not blaspheme the spirit like the Pharisees did, but your words are still of great consequence. Never let anything come out of your mouth or your pen or your keyboard which you would not want to answer for on the day of judgment. That includes speaking carelessly about God, taking his holy name in vain. That includes both gossip and slander. Friends, avoid them both. Includes hurtful jibes and thoughtless comments that put other people down. Includes derogatory things that we say to make us look good at the expense of others. Includes how we speak about genuine believers who are different from us. Every careless word, for every idle remark, for everything that we say that would be better left unsaid, we will give account. And unless we are forgiven, our words will condemn us because they show up our sinful hearts. On the other hand, Jesus does say there are words that justify there are words, Jesus says, that lead God to declaring us not guilty on the day of judgment. It doesn't tell us what they are here. But after his death and resurrection, we find out from the Apostle Paul, whom he appointed. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that really does reflect a heart that believes that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. That is God's promise to us. Words matter. But let's circle back now to what Jesus said about the unforgivable sin. Because that's a, sometimes a cause of much anxiety among believers. People worry whether or not they've committed the unforgivable sin. But remember the invitation of Jesus to us last week? He said in 11.28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Elsewhere in the Bible, in John 6.37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All right, and so since Scripture interprets Scripture, we must never interpret one part of Scripture so as to oppose another part. So we don't like, if you come to Christ, then, then you couldn't have committed the unforgivable sin, right? Because Jesus says, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. So if you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you come to Christ for forgiveness. He will forgive your sin, whatever it is. His death on the cross is big enough to pay for it. And if he forgives you, then you know whatever sin that you committed, 
was not the unforgivable sin. Because if someone really has committed the unforgivable sin, they will not come to Jesus. Because they've already made up their mind to reject the servant's work and call it the work of the devil. So on a very practical level, you don't have to worry about having committed the unforgivable sin if, if you come to Jesus. On the other hand, there may be some people here who, actually when you realize, you actually realize you're on the wrong side in that spiritual battle. You're on the wrong side of Jesus. Though before you never worried about it, right? Maybe you thought you were neutral. But now you realize that actually Jesus said, if you're not with him, then you're against him, whether or not you mean to be. Or maybe you're someone who's been actively opposing him. You've spoken against him in terrible ways. You can still be forgiven. Not everyone who rejects Jesus has committed the unforgivable sin. Remember the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul hated Jesus so much, he persecuted Christians until, until Jesus appeared to him. He was, in his own words, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But Jesus forgave him. Every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Every word you've spoken against Jesus, the Son of Man, can be forgiven. The servant died to make it possible. And he can rescue you, even you, from the clutches of the devil. Only don't keep on rejecting his servant work again and again and again. Don't let your heart be so hardened against the work of his spirit until you reach the point of no return. Don't be like the Pharisees who looked for the excuse to condemn him and ended up condemning themselves. Instead, you come to Jesus in repentance and faith. If you come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warnings and encouragements from your word. We thank you for the servant work of the Lord Jesus, who by the Spirit offered himself as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, defeated the evil one. Thank you for rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and making us part of the kingdom of your Son. Thank you for the privilege of working with him in his work of rescuing people from the clutches of the devil. I pray that you help us to trust you and your plans and purposes, but to do things our own way or the ways of the world. Give us hearts, we pray, that love you and love others. And may our words reflect that. And for anyone here who hasn't come to Jesus in repentance and faith, please have mercy upon them. Please draw them to your Son. And may they not develop hearts that become so hard that they commit the unforgivable sin. 
Instead, we pray that you draw them to Jesus, that they may be forgiven of everything they've done and have life forever in him. We ask this in his name. Amen.